In 2010, others persevered through lengthy trials. All of us are aware of the 33 Chilean miners who endured 69 days under the earth before they were rescued on October 13, 2010. On November 24, 2010, three teenagers, three teenage boys, were rescued after 50 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean. 50 days. They were from the Tokelau Islands, the New Zealand Territory in the South Pacific. They had been presumed dead. But as Mr. Partian said in the sermonette video, don't ever give up. These teenage boys had to fight to survive, not knowing whether they would be rescued or not. They did have plenty of time to think. Do we use our time to think? What do you think about most of the time? The famous physicist Albert Einstein gave this perspective on the concept of relativity and how we think. Quote, put your hand on a hot stove for a minute, and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour, and it seems like a minute. That's relativity. How we think may depend on our circumstances. There's a famous statue by the French sculptor Auguste Rodin, the thinker. It was supposed to depict Dante before the gates of hell meditating on his poem. The sculpture is made of marble and is bronze and is now located at the Musée Rodin in Paris. Some years ago, my wife gave me bookends of this famous sculptor, the thinker. Why did she give me this gift? It makes you think, doesn't it? By the way, another reason I am fond of uh, Mr. Partian, he gave away my wife to me at our wedding more than 46 years ago. I have thanked him for more than once for that. Mr. Herbert Armstrong commented on the Rodin sculpture, The Thinker, from page 11 of Mystery of the Ages. He said, quote, you probably have seen pictures of the statue The Thinker, the man sitting alone, leaning forward, elbows on his knees, his hands supporting his head. There, supposedly, he sits in deep thought, hour after hour, day after day, just thinking. Supposedly, that statue depicts the manner in which some of the religious of the world came into being. But the thinker had nothing to think from, no foundation for his thinking, no facts on which to base his conjectures. The human mind is not equipped to manufacture truth with no basis for truth. However few, it seems, really think. Mr. Armstrong had to admit that he had a problem with thinking because he didn't have the right foundation. Later he said on page 12, I was no different of myself and of my own volition. I would never have discovered these great truths. But truth is revealed from God. I asked my wife one time, what is one of the greatest blessings of our human mind? And she said, to think the thoughts of God. So I want to ask you today, just how well are you using the gift of thought and thinking? What are you thinking right now? God knows. He knows my thoughts. He knows your thoughts. He knows the thoughts of all human beings. 
Do we meditate on spiritual things or carnal things? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, 1 Corinthians 3. And I'll quote, first of all, from Psalm 94, where this is quoted from. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. So God knows the thoughts of man. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, and verse 20. Again, the Apostle Paul is quoting from Psalm 94, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The King James Version says that they are vain. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, says that they are useless. God has called us to learn with a humble attitude. As Mr. Partian stated in the sermonette, humility is a key to success. The secret to success is humility, he said. However, the intellectually proud will not learn God's ways. You know Psalm 111, verse 10, which even Mr. Partian used to quote. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. In Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those filled with intellectual vanity will not even begin to grow spiritually. Mr. Carl McNair, years ago, when, when he was director of church administration, gave an example of humility. He wrote about uh, President Roosevelt, and this was in the church administration update, December 6, 2002. Quote, it has been said that when President Roosevelt entertained diplomatic guests at the White House, he was fond of taking them out to the back lawn at the end of the day. As the president stood gazing at the night sky, all eyes would eventually be cast heavenward as his were. In his days, the vast array of stars was not dimmed by the city lights, and the magnificent display of God's brilliant creation would overcome the party. After a long moment, Mr. Roosevelt would say, Gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now Let's go to bed. End of quote. We've all learned lessons of humility, I hope. And, of course, on the Day of Atonement, we humble ourselves through fasting, and we do that at other times as well. But let's take a look at a major key to growing spiritually. And we'll take a look at one of the most basic examples here, starting with Psalm 1. Turn to the book of Psalms, <clears throat> Psalm 1. By the way, I'm just curious... I learned this probably in, I guess, the fourth or fifth grade. How many of you can think you can recite at least most of Psalm 1? Let me see your hands. How many of you? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Hmm. All right. <clears throat> I encourage all of you to memorize Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't walk in that mindset. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful as a self-appointed critic. But his delight is in the law of the eternal. And in his law, he meditates day and night. How are you using your thinking? 
Are you meditating on God's law, his way of life? What are the blessings of one who meditates day and night on God's law? Verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in a season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. One of the greatest keys for spiritual growth is meditation. Do our thoughts produce godly actions? Do we meditate on God's law? As you saw in the video, Mr. Partian said, if we want to succeed in life, we need to obey the law. But we need to meditate on it as well. <clears throat> Years ago, I think it might have been a student in class, or it may have been at an outlying church area. I remember one of those uh, memorable sermonettes, and you can probably think of sermonettes from way back years ago that stand out in your mind. <clears throat> this one was the analogy of an automobile similar to spiritual progress. And the automobile had four wheels, prayer, fasting, Bible study, and meditation. You take off one of the wheels, and you will not go forward. You will not progress. So are you moving forward spiritually on our all four wheels? We need to remember what God thinks, because he wants us to think like he thinks. Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians 2. <clears throat> one of the benefits and blessings of meditation is success. He that meditates on God's law day and night, whatsoever he does, shall prosper. Philippians, the second chapter, again, another fundamental quick scripture on the use of our minds and our character and our spiritual condition. Ephesians, the second chapter. And this has been read in sermons recently. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, what is the greatest gift that you have, the most wonderful physical possession? You might say, well, my son, my daughter, or maybe beyond that, the Bible. But your mind is the most important physical possession you have, although it's not just physical. It has that spiritual component to it. What is the key for that mind of Christ? He goes on to say, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, <clears throat> but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's verse 3. But speaking of Christ, not, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation or emptied himself, as it has in the margin, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, the very major characteristic of the mind of Christ is that of service. And as Mr. Mepardian said, one of the characteristics of being a good servant, that is to be a good leader, is to be a good servant. We need to practice godly meditation, and we need to practice godly thinking. The title for today's sermon is, Practice Godly Meditation. You can reflect back on the special music for a special connection. The second part of the sermon will be at a later time and will emphasize godly thinking.
Let's be honest with ourselves. How many of our thoughts are carnal or worldly? How many of our thoughts are godly? How many of our thoughts are ungodly? And how many thoughts do you have in a day? According to a book by Michael Clarkson called Quick Fixes for Everyday Fears, he states, quote, The average person has 66,000 thoughts per day, two-thirds of them negative. The University of Wisconsin research shows that the things people worry about, 40% are things that never occur, 30% are about things from the past, 12% are needless concerns about health, 10% are petty and miscellaneous cares, and only 8% are legitimate concerns. In other words, most worry is wasted, even counterproductive energy. So are you wasting your thinking, your worrying about things of, that are non-essential? Let's turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew 6. Again, Jesus gives us this instruction with regard to our minds, our anxieties, our thoughts. <clears throat> Matthew, the sixth chapter. And I used to tell the congregations I pastored, if you need to learn one scripture, of course there are many we need to learn, but one is Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Our whole commitment, our whole purpose for being is to seek first the kingdom of God. How many of us are doing that? How many of us are seeking secondary goals but making them primary? This is the primary goal. We dedicate our lives 24-7 to seeking first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Not our own righteousness or the righteousness of our friends or the righteousness of society because those are false values. But he goes on to say in verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we need to set goals for the future. We need to again put our anxieties and our worries on God's shoulders, as it says in First Peter, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I know sometimes when I'm all nervous or upset about something and there are some problems or challenges, I think about that scripture in 1 Peter 5, casting all your care upon him. And that relieves me of that worry and that stress. <clears throat> we have to trust God to bring us through the challenges and opportunities, which was the title of Dr. Warnell's sermon last week, Challenges and Opportunities. He challenged us to set goals for 2011. What goals are you setting for 2011? We have a sermon in our library, number 568, Spiritual Goals. And in just a couple weeks from now, on January 1st, uh, many people around the world will be making resolutions for the new year. Now, we make resolutions several times during the year, in the annual festivals, the Passover time, Feast of Tabernacles time. And uh, I've shared this with you before, but what goals have you set or are you setting? And uh, forgive me for those who have heard me share this before, but I have 
several new people and, you know, Calvin, who is the precocious, wise little whippersnapper and his uh, wise counselor, uh, who is uh, the tiger, Hobbes. And uh, they're going down the wintry hill on a sled. And uh, the tiger is sitting on the back of the sled. Calvin is in the front of the sled. And he says, everybody makes the wrong kind of New Year's resolution, Calvin says to the tiger Hobbes. All they do is promise to stop bad habits and start good habits. And uh, Hobbes says, what's wrong with that? Calvin says, it's not enough to change a few little habits. Everybody I know needs a complete personality overhaul. So Calvin really knows what needs to be changed. And they go down the hill in the sled and go off a hill, and they're tumbling through the snow. And Calvin continues his philosophy. That's why I'll be spending the remaining days of this year telling people what I hate about them and how they should change. Isn't that true of many people in the world? They just want to tell others how to change and not how to change themselves. And then Hobbes says, as they're crawling out of a pool of icy water, they crashed into the snowbank. And Hobbes says to uh, Calvin, some of us would be happy to reciprocate. And uh, Calvin says, sorry, my New Year's resolution is not to change a bit. Now, again, that just doesn't that just seem to be the attitude and the atmosphere and the spirit of the world that they are going to go along with the world and not going to seek God's kingdom first above all else and desire to change. We saw in Psalm 1 that one who meditates on God's law will prosper. We saw in Philippians 2.5 that we are to have that mind in Christ and to serve like he is and like he does. To have that attitude of service and humility. Well, what is meditation? We are to practice godly meditation. I asked my wife at breakfast one time, what is meditation? She said, it's deep thought about a subject with God's guidance for deeper understanding of a truth on a subject. Unger's Bible Dictionary, New Unger's Bible Dictionary, which I would recommend as a very good study aid, defines it this way, meditation, a private devotional act consisting in deliberate reflection upon some spiritual truth or mystery accompanied by mental prayer and by acts of the affection and of the will, especially formation of resolutions as to future conduct. Meditation is a duty that ought to be attended to by all who wish well to their spiritual interests. It should be deliberate, close, and continuous. We have in our Tomorrow's World Bible Study course, lesson number 23, Tools for Spiritual Growth. One of the sections in this uh, Bible Study course lesson is the importance of meditation. Mr. John O'Gwyn shares the story of how Mr. Armstrong took a third of his time while he fasted to do Bible study prayer, and meditation. Uh, Mr. Meredith has commented on that in the past. I'll just read from the lesson. Page 9. He spent the next hour in contemplation and meditation, 
after studying the subject of fasting. Thinking about what he had read, he tried to examine his own life in the recent past and to compare it to what he had read. Then he spent the third hour on his knees in prayer to God. Never once did his prayer, in his prayer, did he ask God to heal his wife, which was the purpose for his fasting. He had been doing that for weeks with no real result. Rather, he asked for understanding of what God wanted him to see. Through the course of the next day and a half, Mr. Armstrong kept up the same rotating pattern of Bible study, meditation, and prayer. Gradually, it began to dawn on him that he had gotten so wrapped up in his new business venture and his dreams of financial security that God had been relegated to second place in his mind and in the focus of his energy. And so just as he learned that lesson, then God began to bless him as the parents brought some needed uh, resources to him at that time. One of the purposes of meditation is understanding. I won't turn there, but Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Dictionary definition of meditation is profound and generally peaceful consideration of truths that are thought to have great importance in ordering and living one's life. So how many of you can say that uh, maybe this past week or um, past, I hope in the past week, that you have set aside some time, maybe when you were in bed or maybe when you were seated by a fireplace, how many of you actually took a little time to think about one of the deeper issues of life? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you. That's a good... Uh, 50%. The others are Laodicean. No, I'm <laughs> sorry about that. <coughs> no, but we need to. You know, we're in training to be conformed to the image of Christ, that is, his nature and his character. Next, let's take a look. We've described what meditation is, some of the definitions. So let's take a look at some of the benefits of meditation. Let's turn to Joshua the first chapter, we've already mentioned it, but this is just a confirmation. And when we think about some of the heroes of the Bible, we see that they meditated. And God also instructed, in this case, Joshua to meditate. He says in verse 6 of Joshua 1, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7, Joshua 1. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which my Moses, which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do all according that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and what will be the benefit? And then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the, the eternal your God is with you wherever you go. One of the benefits of meditation, as we already saw in Psalm 1 and here in Joshua 1, 
is that of success. We need to think about our life, what we need to change, and realize, yes, am I in conformity to the way of life that God gives us in his law of love? There's a side benefit. Let's turn back there briefly to Genesis, uh, the 24th chapter, Genesis 24. And here's another example of one of the patriarchs who meditated, Genesis 24 and verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. Now, some of the commentaries saying that the word meditate there was a mournful meditation because his mother had died. But he goes out in the field and he lifted up his eyes and looked and there were camels coming. <clears throat> then Rebekah lifted her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. And it says in verse uh, 67, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So perhaps, and I can't say this is a law, uh, you single men, but there is a benefit here. Uh, Isaac went out to meditate, and along came this beautiful girl. <laughs> so maybe that's one of the side benefits of meditation. But he was comforted. He went out to meditate because he was... Uh, lonely and sad at his mother's death, but now he is comforted. What well, is another benefic- benefit of meditation? It will help you to pray more effectively. Let's turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter. Matthew 6 again. Remember Hosea 7, verse 14. I think Dr. Meredith quoted that in the, his recent sermon, where the Moffat translation says, They never put their heart into their prayers. Do you have a sleepy time prayer or a mindless prayer, rote prayer? When you meditate and you think about the deeper issues of life, you're motivated and you have content, various specific subjects to pray about. Matthew, the sixth chapter. And here again, this is the model prayer or the outline prayer. When we think about the first part, there are times, of course, when you have to give immediate Emergency prayers, as I've mentioned before, driving with a church member many years ago, and uh, he was driving, and I was his passenger, and he was looking at me all the time he was driving. And, and, and all of a sudden, the car in front stopped, and I gave an immediate prayer, help! So there are times when you have... An urgent prayer. And anyway, he looked back just in time to stop before crashing into the car in front of him. I think there's a, there is a proverb that says, Let your eyes look straight ahead, neither to the left nor to the right. And it works pr- primarily when you're driving as well. Here in Matthew, the sixth chapter, <clears throat> the model prayer. Jesus said in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And again, if you're meditating on the, the very office and name and existence of our Heavenly Father, you'll be able to spend a certain amount of time just on that one subject alone. What are some of God's offices, characteristics, and names? He's the Creator, the Lawgiver. The life giver, the sustainer, the designer, the one who fulfills prophecy, 
the one who answers prayers. He's the eternal who heals. He's the father of lights in James 1. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift in James 1. He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort in 1 Corinthians 1. He's the father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named in Ephesians 3. He's the father of spirits. He is love, 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16. And as I brought out in a previous sermon, Mr. Armstrong said, what is the greatest fact in the world in three words? God rules supreme. Well, the greatest reality is the fact that God exists and that he rules all things. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent through his spirit, as it brings out in Psalm 139. So if you're meditating on the names of God and the offices of God, then your prayer is going to be more effective. Then, of course, you can even think of Christ's names and offices. I hope you saw the telecast last weekend on who is Jesus. Can you name just off the top of your head some of the offices and characteristics and titles of Jesus? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 11, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in Isaiah 9, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's the bread of life, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the great shepherd. He is the Savior of the world. And he is our great high priest. As you meditate on the names of God and the offices and the characteristics, your prayer will be more effective. One of the benefits of godly meditation is that it will help you pray more effectively. A third Benefit after success and effective prayer is that godly meditation draws you closer to God. Let's turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I don't know how many of you pray at night. Some of you may be able to sleep all, all through the night. Some of us have to get up two or three times because of our physical impairments and our age. And some of us have our minds going at uh, other times, and uh, we just think, think, think. And I have to pray that I can go to sleep, and so I'll take five deep breaths. I'll give you that as a hint as my personal way of trying to go to sleep. If I can't go to sleep, breathe in slowly and breathe out slowly, and uh, I'm able to go to sleep. Psalm 139, verse uh, 17. Oh, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. When you meditate, when you think about God's thoughts so that they can become your thoughts, you are closer to God. When I awake, I am still with you. 
Now, I know some of us have to have a cup of coffee in the morning to get our brains in action. But nonetheless, if we're thinking that way, we will still have that close encounter, that close relationship with God. What encourages us to think more deeply? Oftentimes, it's when we face the reality of death. And we think, well, could I have shown more love to my friend or to my family member? And sometimes people feel guilty because they haven't done enough in their relationship. They begin to think more deeply at the time of death of a friend. Dr. Meredith has shared how he was moved as a teenager when his friend Jimmy Mallett died in a wrestling accident. And he began to think more deeply, what happened? What is death? What is life? This is an advanced copy of the January-February Tomorrow's World magazine with the handwriting on the, the handwriting is on the wall, a cover article by Dr. Douglas Winnale. Dr. Meredith writes, what is the meaning of your life? When I was 15 years old, my friend Jimmy Mallett suffered an accidental death. As they let down the casket containing Jimmy's body, my mind was flooded with memories about how we sat out on the near, nearby Missouri hills and philosophized about all kinds of things together as teenage boys attending different Protestant churches. We could certainly understand that we were not getting a total answer as to why we were born what life was all about, or about the ultimate goal of humanity. So he asked the question, why must all humans suffer and die? If we go to heaven after death, as my preacher said, would we just sit around up there playing harps with nothing to do? Is that all there is, I wondered? I think most of us have gone through that process, perhaps one time in our life. What makes us think more deeply when a tragedy happens and we have to turn to God for comfort and for understanding? Mr. Partian's video showed how he had to think about the deeper meaning and purpose of life. And we look forward to the resurrection of the saints. And I was, we were talking the other day at lunch and realizing, you know, when is the resurrection going to take place? A hundred years from now? A thousand years from now? Mm, it's coming pretty close. And you think about people that I've not seen for 10 or 15 years, and yet there's going to be a great resurrection of the saints at the seventh trumpet. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, when all of the saints, and I've got quite a list, and we take a look at our ministerial photo album back around 2005, I believe it was, or 2004. And we see those uh, ministers, our friends, who have died in the faith. And, of course, it tells us in Revelation 1 that their works do follow them. But we are not going to have to wait very long. Will it be 15 years, 20 years, when Christ returns? Or will it be even sooner? It's not very long from now. We can look forward to the resurrection. What makes us think more deeply? Again, 
When we suffer, as Mr. Partian wrote in the church bulletin, that little that article behind closed doors when he was in the hospital and realizing, well, there are human beings in the this other room over here. There, there are other human beings behind those doors. What is their life like? And we understand the purpose of life. We understand the wonderful outcome through the annual festivals and through the white throne judgment. We know that every human being on the face of the earth will have his or her full, wonderful opportunity to be a part of the family of God for all eternity. What else gets us to thinking deeply? Perhaps when we are facing a certain reality. It was back in 1961, I read a booklet from the Worldwide Church of God titled 1975 in Prophecy. And I'd have gone through my own depression thinking about the nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union and the Cold War in 1959. I was without hope, but I had to hope against hope. And then realized that through the Tomorrow's World, World Tomorrow radio program of Mr. Herbert Armstrong that Christ is coming back. There is hope. That turned my life around. But when I read that booklet, 1975 in Prophecy, I realized there is a great tribulation coming and I need to change. Mr. Wally Smith's uh, program this weekend, or no, I'm sorry, that'll be January 30th. We just reviewed his uh, telecast called Terror of the Tribulation, a frightening title. Nobody wants to think about these things, he said, in the telecast, which you'll view on January 30th. Reality gets us to thinking. Sickness, suffering, death gets us to thinking about the deeper issues of life and our future. Remember what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 3, verse 7. He said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we're warning people to flee, that is, through repentance, so they can escape the Great Tribulation. One unusual letter that came to us from Tasmania some years ago, a subscriber wrote to Dr. Meredith, Dear Mr. Meredith, I am writing you not for the Middle East and Prophecy booklet, but to cancel my subscription to Tomorrow's World. A friend recommended that I become involved, but I find the world a sad place and mankind on the verge of self-destruction. And the revelations I come across in your articles are so closely allied to my own beliefs that I am quite depressed after reading them. I would like to return to my own ignorance and preserve my peace of mind. Yours respectfully, the subscriber. Here is one who wants to be like the, uh, the proverbial ostrich and put his head in the sand. That's why John the Baptist said, Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Take action with your life. And that's part of our mission with tomorrow's world. To warn the Israelite descended nations and the whole world of the time that is coming and that they need to make, take action to repent and change. And allow God to let them escape the great tribulation that is coming. Yes, we draw closer to God when we face reality. 
Godly meditation draws you closely, closer to God. When did King David meditate? Let's turn to Psalm 63. I'm sorry, yes, Psalm 63 and verse 6. Psalm 63 and verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So again, David prayed or meditated when it was night. And again, some of you may be up or, uh, or may be sleeping straight through. But at one, uh, one other psalm, I don't have the reference to it, where David says, At midnight I will rise and give you thanks. In other words, you are attuned to God's existence and your relationship to Him at all times. I meditate on you in the night watches. Dr. Meredith wrote an article in the May-June 2007 Tomorrow's World magazine on the subject of meditation. It was titled, A Vital Key to Spiritual Growth. Quote, David took time to meditate and to think on what was truly important. He often did this outdoors in the midst of God's marvelous creation, looking up at the moon and stars. He did not have a radio or television blatting away in the background or a phone ringing or other distractions while he was spending time seeking God. And so you're familiar with Psalm 8 and verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, David asked, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him? and the Son of Man that you visit him. And, of course, that's later quoted in Hebrews 2 and verse 6. So David was able to contrast his tiny little space compared to the vastness of the heavens that he saw. And he was marveling that here I am, such this little tiny creature, and yet you, God, the Creator of this vast universe, and you can think of little old me? Oh, God knows the hairs on every one of our heads. And as Dr. Meredith's written in one coworker letter years ago, well, not so many years ago, but really impressed upon my mind, every single human being, he wrote, is precious in God's sight. We all need to consider that and think about that. Every stranger we meet, we realize this is a potential member of the family of God. Yes, we can meditate when we think about the heavens, and of course we have light pollution in our modern age, which makes it a little more difficult at times. But now is a good time to ask the deeper questions of life. Why was I born? What is the incredible human potential that Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote on his book by that title, The Incredible Human Potential? And what is our ultimate destiny? And of course our booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny, that Dr. Meredith has written. Such precious, extremely valuable truth the world does not know. Mr. Partian was saying we needed to be grateful for what we have, and what we have is priceless. God has given that to us. We briefly talked about three benefits of Meditation, godly meditation leads to success in life. Godly meditation will help you pray more effectively. 
Godly meditation draws you closer to God. Well, how do you meditate? There are methods for thinking wisely. Some people do it just because of the circumstances. They're alone and a peaceful setting by a lake or sipping coffee and under a tree. But one other way is to do it purposefully, and that is to have a notepad with you. How many of you have had a special thought you wanted to remember, but then you lost that thought? I've, I've had this wonderful thought, then, then later on, oh, what was that thought? I forgot that wonderful thought. I lost it. I have to pray and ask God to help me remember what it is. So I carry around, of course, my little week at a glance, and I'm writing down little notes. And uh, sometime in the night, great thoughts come in my mind, and I forget them, but now I try to associate something with that thought, thought a hook that I can remember it in the morning. And during sermon preparation, sometimes when I'm on my knees, I'll have a, a, a pad, a paper with me, and just brainstorm on a certain topic. What do I think about meditation? What do I know about meditation? What are my personal experiences with meditation? And oftentimes in prayer, God will give me new ideas that come through His Spirit. And I know He's giving me those ideas. They're connecting with something that is spiritual, that is in the database of God's Word. Mr. Carl McNair told me, as I recall, that he had a little tape recorder on his bedstand to capture that midnight thought. That when a thought came well, he didn't have to get up. He just turned on the little tape recorder and share that note. I tried to confirm that with Mrs. Dorothy McNair. She uh, couldn't confirm the midnight tape recording. She was probably asleep at the time. But she did confirm that he did take a tape recorder with him on trips so that he could record thoughts as they were traveling and dictate notes into the tape recorder. How do you meditate? You get in a quiet and private place. You ask God for understanding. And also you ask the questions which journalists, you know, in 101, learn the questions, ask the questions, who, what, why, when, where, how, I may have missed one or two, uh, which I guess is a rare one to ask. But when Mr. Armstrong was a little boy, he thought he'd like to be a streetcar motorman. And in his autobiography, Mr. Armstrong wrote, I do remember, though, that my father had a different idea of what I would be when I grew up. I wanted to understand. I was constantly pestering with questions. I always seemed to want to know why and how. I wanted to understand. At age five, I can remember my father saying, that youngin is always asking so many questions, he's sure to be a Philadelphia lawyer when he grows up. That obsession for understanding, Mr. Armstrong wrote, was to have a great influence on founding the Plain Truth magazine in Ambassador College in later years. So when we meditate, there are methods, and we need to, again, concentrate on having a purpose or a topic. But let me give you a caution here. Why have so many Church of God groups gone off track from true doctrine? Let's turn to Proverbs 18.1. I want you to remember this in terms of a caution of meditation or thinking, or studying, or researching a topic, or a doctrine. 
Fine men that I knew that were my friends have gone so far off base, it's incredible. And I ask why. Proverbs 18.1 gives an answer. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Some of those who've gone and started their own little groups have decided they would be their own unilateral judge without counsel from others. Spokesmen in the Spokesman Club know Proverbs 27:17. As iron sharpens iron, so does man sharpen the countenance of his friends. And some of those who went off base did not expose themselves to wise counsel and guidance and correction. And that's why Dr. Meredith has a council of elders, men with different experience, training, and background to give wise counsel. And I hope that some of our church members who come up with wild ideas and doctrines are again exposing those ideas and doctrines for correction to stay on the right track and to stay to the trunk of the tree, the fundamental doctrines. Another method, of course, of meditating is to review your notes. Sometimes you'll ask someone, uh, you were absent here in Charlotte, and you ask your friend, well, what was the sermon about last week? And you say, oh, it was a really good sermon. Uh, yes, what was the topic about? Oh, yeah, he did a really good job. It was an excellent sermon. You don't even remember the topic of the sermon. So Dr. Meredith wrote in... Uh, one of his uh, articles about the Feast of Tabernacles, that we really need to review our notes and to, again, think about the sermon that was given and to meditate on it. As he said in uh, the January-February, actually you haven't received it yet, the January-February LCN 2011, writing about the millennium and our part in God's family, Dr. Meredith states, quote, This wonderful destiny is part of what we picture each year at the Feast of Tabernacles. From time to time throughout the year, we shall go back and review the notes we took during the feast from the excellent sermons given. We should meditate frequently on this and let the reality of God's coming government be uppermost in our minds. That's an article, Growth Through Servant Leadership, January, February 2011, LCN. Yes, we should go back and review the notes that we took. We also, in meditating in a godly way, need to focus and commit ourselves to think positive thoughts. That doesn't mean we don't analyze negative events, but we think positive thoughts, we have a positive attitude. I hope you're already turning there. You know what scripture I'm turning to for positive thinking. Philippians 4 and starting with verse 6. Philippians 4 and verse 6. You already saw from that University of Wisconsin research that people worry about things that never occur. Forty percent of their thoughts are in that category. Philippians 4, verse 6. Rejoice, well, start with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Yes, Paul was in chains, he was in prison, and yet he could tell others to have a positive attitude even in a very uncomfortable condition. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Yes, we know to always understand 
that God's kingdom needs to come, and we're praying your kingdom come. Let be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. You have a problem. You're worried. You're anxious. God says, discuss it. Take all your worries, your fears, your concerns to God in prayer. And do it with a thankful attitude. As Mr. Parting was expressing several times, I received a letter from a lady. The record information services, which receives the mail that comes in, often will send me a a poem uh, since they know I like poetry. And this is from London, Kentucky, a prayer of thanksgiving for mother love and father care, for brothers strong and sisters fair, for love at home and care each day, for guidance lest we go astray. Father in heaven, we thank thee. O God, I thank thee for each sight of beauty that thy hand doth give, for sunny skies and air and light. O God, I thank thee that I live. Part of meditating effectively, of course, is being creative. And I may not get onto that subject in this sermon, perhaps in a later sermon. We'll see. But here in Philippians, the fourth chapter, we see that these are the things we meditate on. This is the positive attitude, the thankful attitude that Mr. Partian referred to. And Philippians 4.8 was one of his favorite scriptures. And his life reflected this verse. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, pure, lovely, of a good report, can you say something good about your enemy? If there is any virtue or if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Of course, the King James Version has think on these things. New King James Version Meditate on these things. Verse 9, the things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So we need to find a quiet place to meditate, to ask questions, to test our thoughts with wise men and women. We need to review our sermon and Bible study notes. We need to commit ourselves to thinking positive thoughts. We need to maintain a positive Attitude. Again, uh, we heard recently in a sermon about the example of Paul and Silas in prison. And here they are with chains on their legs in a cell. And yet Acts 16 verse 25 says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. Always maintain that positive attitude. Now, what topics should we meditate upon? Let's turn to Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97. Again, a very popular, well-known verse for most of our old-timers. Psalm 119, verse 97. King David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. My meditation all the day. 
Does that mean that you just kind of memorize various uh, scriptures and statutes? And Well, you try to apply them to your life. How does this apply to me? I remember years ago when uh, I was uh, going on a baptizing tour, and we were up in Goebbels, Michigan, uh, staying with a minister there, and a horse got uh, loose in the neighborhood. And I had just been reading one of the statutes that says if you're your enemy's beast goes astray, you know, uh, go retrieve him. And so just having read that statute, we went, ran after the horse. I think we, I didn't capture him, but I think someone else returned him. <clears throat> it's another story that uh, I see Mr. and Mrs. Clore here. You'll have to ask Grandpa Ron Peterson about uh, his pet lion one time and about uh, how you retrieve lost uh, animals. It's another story that I don't have time for here. Let him tell the story. It's Psalm 119, 97. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. When you have these brilliant scholars arguing against the existence of God, promoting evolution, arguing about whatever relativistic or materialistic values they're promoting, you sometimes are on the defensive. No need to be on the defensive. If you're solidly groomed in the commandments of God, you have more wisdom. You have more understanding. He goes on to say, I, have under I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. So what should we meditate upon? Obviously, God's law. I remember as a student at Ambassador College, I think it was about 26 years of age at that time. At the time, I decided, well, when I go to bed, what I'm going to do each night, I'm going to select one of the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to meditate on it. I selected the Fifth Commandment. And I was there lying in bed, and I began to think about my life and how I ran away one time, I guess, at about age seven or eight and decided after I went two blocks that that wasn't the right thing to do and came back and found the door locked. <laughs> it taught me a lesson. And then I began to think about, you know, all the patient times my parents had dealt with me in spite of my trials, in spite of perhaps my disrespect from time to time as well, how my mother had changed my diapers I began to really think that I had not really honored my father and mother. After meditating on that, I began to bawl. I began to cry and realize I had really not honored my father and mother like I should have. Just meditating on that commandment had a deep effect on my life. So you can meditate on God's commandments. You can meditate on God's statutes. And I'd like you to just, uh, if those of you are taking notes, this is the September-October Living Church News. And Dr. Meredith gives us this exhortation with regard to the statutes and uh, actually gives us some uh, sections here I'd like you to write down that are statutes that you can study. God is revealed in chapters 20 through 24 of Exodus. So if you write these down, these are the areas of statutes that you can meditate on. Exodus 20 through 24. 
Leviticus 16 through 27 chapters. Uh, Leviticus 18 and 19. I'm sorry. Uh, that's uh, okay. I'm sorry. Leviticus 16 through 27 and Numbers 18 through 19, Numbers 27 through 30, and Numbers 35 through 36. Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 28. If you want to double check that, it's the Living Church News, September, October 2010, page 20. What else can you meditate on? You meditate on God's work. As you heard Mr. Partian say that Dr. Meredith said we're going to cover the world. How are we going to do that? Mr. Partian says God is doing it. We have the faith that God will do what he wants to do. And we have to do our part. Dr. Meredith's December 15th co-worker letter, which my wife and I just received yesterday. How many of you, by the way, have received your co-worker letter? Just came yesterday. Most of you have. Good. Okay. In the dark, I can't get a, a, a precise percentage like I usually do. It looks like about 60.5% this time. But in that letter, he mentioned how the Discovery Channel reaches 99.5 million households in the United States. God TV that we're going on January 1st reaches 175 million households around the world. And in those 175 million households are about 500 million people. He said in the last sentence of his co-worker letter, may we be stirred to truly make our lives count for something by becoming totally involved in the very work Christ is using to warn this world and to prepare the way for his everlasting kingdom. So think about God's work. Sometimes having a globe, we have a map upstairs in our headquarters building showing all of the festival sites around the world. It gives you a good perspective. Remember Christ's instructions in Matthew 9, verse 38, Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So think about the future. Think about God's work. You can visualize God's throne. There's so much to think about that is spiritually important and vital. Revelation, the fourth chapter, just to review the description of the very throne room of God. What a revelation that is. That God would have that much love to show you and me his very throne room. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, the sea of glass, the seven spirits of flame, the thunders and lightnings, the innumerable company of angels, and with Christ glorified at his right hand. So much to meditate on, to visualize the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. Those are some of the things that you can meditate on. Let's turn to Psalm 19. God wants us to think like he thinks. He's called us to be the world's greatest thinkers. He tells us that we need to have the mind of Christ, as we saw in Philippians 2.5. So we need to pray that our thoughts will harmonize with God's thoughts and his way of life and his way of thinking. So, brethren, meditate on the scriptures daily. And as you saturate your mind with the Word of God, your character, your mind, your spirit will grow in the very nature of Christ. When we practice meditation God's way, 
we obey Christ's command to love God not only with our heart and soul and strength, but with our minds. So, brethren, this week, think deeply. I'll give you one final scripture here in Psalm 19, verse 14. This should be our prayer, and I encourage you to pray this frequently. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, what I think about, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So, brethren, let's seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Visualize God's way of life and peace for all humanity. And let's look forward to the resurrection in the not-too-distant future. So, brethren, this week, practice godly meditation. And may we all pray the prayer of King David, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer.